Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. This episode, I have the tale of a real-life action hero and his supercar. I have the tale of an impromptu joy flight in a supersonic fighter jet. And finally, a whale of a tale. I'll just leave it at that, except to say that if you are in any way squeamish, that last story might not be for you. Our first story takes place during the Bosnian Civil War. For the last few decades of the 20th century, television characters were often associated with their vehicles, with a few notable exceptions such as Wonder Woman, who had an invisible jet, For the most part, the characters drove cars, and the cars were carefully chosen to add to how the character was perceived by the audience. From the roar of the hemi-orange V8 Dodge Charger with its rebel flag painted on the roof, which we came to associate with the Dukes of Hazzard, to the Volvo P1800 Grand Tourer Coupe, used by the suit-wearing, roguish but gentlemanly playboy spy, with perfect hair, Simon Templer. In the Saint. And of course, who could forget the little green mini incorporated into the lovable buffoonery of Mr. Bean? But quite a few of these cars were not simply props. They were integral to the character's ability to perform tasks. Where, for example, would Batman have been without all the high-tech gadgetry of the Batmobile? And in one case, in the 1980s series Knight Rider, The gadgetry was so complex that the car itself was imbued with consciousness and personality and a coherent worldview. The vehicle chosen for that particular program was a black 1982 model Pontiac Trans Am, known by the anacronym KIT, short for Night Industries 2000. And some of its basic features were stealth capabilities, a booster that gave it astonishing speed, and the capability of jumping other objects... And it was bulletproof. And as a young pre-teen and avid watcher of the program, I wondered if such a vehicle might one day become a reality. Though I didn't know it at the time, I didn't have very long to wait. In the early 1990s, Bosnia would enter into a bloody civil war that would see 100,000 plus people killed. Many countries around the world tried to get aid and food supplies to the civilian refugees, but the slow, lumbering UN trucks that carried the supplies were easy targets, and many were robbed or simply destroyed, with few reaching their destination. Enter Helga Meyer of the Danish Special Forces. A deeply religious man, Meyer was horrified by the plight of the refugees, particularly the children and the elderly, and he had an idea to get them their desperately needed supplies. Instead of large, slow-moving trucks... What about a small, stealthy and fast car? Meyer would even donate the car, a 1979 Chevrolet Camaro. He approached the US Army commander in Rhein-Main Air Base in Germany and told him of his plan. The commander thought it worth a try, and so Meyer would begin ferrying aid over the border into war-torn Bosnia in an American muscle car. But first, a few modifications. The car was completely stripped Armour plating was welded to the underside and incorporated into the sides of the vehicle, including the side and rear windows. The front of the car was fitted with a blade to clear mines and a battering ram, and the finished bodywork 
was painted in a matte black stealth paint that made it almost invisible to radar and thermal imaging. Night vision and thermal imaging cameras and a display were installed, it was given run-flat tyres and ground-to-air radio. The 5.7-litre V8 engine was tuned from 185 horsepower to 220 horsepower, and a nitrous bottle was added, doubling the horsepower to 440 when that extra little bit of speed was required. Finally, as a finishing touch, a yellow rubber duck was fixed to the grill, and the car that would become known as the Ghost Camaro was ready for action. Meyer would load an astonishing 400 kilos into the car and make multiple crossings into the war-torn country, usually at night, with the car routinely being in high-speed pursuits and taking small arms fire. On one occasion, a bullet hit Meyer in the head, but Meyer had the foresight to wear a helmet and came out unscathed. He relied on the car for protection and its ability to escape from armed bandits, as Meyer despite his military training, refused to carry a weapon on these humanitarian missions. His exploits, religious convictions and refusal to carry guns would earn him a nickname, God's Rambo. God's Rambo and his ghost Camaro would carry on these dangerous missions throughout the war, delivering aid to those most in need, and he would continue to do so on his days off, even after the war reached a stalemate. In fact, his humanitarian work lasted for over a decade after the war, and when things began to improve, he finally went home. In the Camaro. Where at the time of this recording in 2021, it still lives in his garage, and is taken out for the odd spin. Walter Holden, known to his friends as Taffy, had a problem. During the 1960s, Taffy was the engineer in charge of maintenance unit number 33 with the Royal Air Force, and a recurring fault in one of the aircraft was giving him a headache. The plane in question was a Lightning, at the time an absolute state-of-the-art fighter interceptor built by English Electric, But despite the brand name being English Electric, one of the fighter's electricals weren't electricing so good. The aircraft in question, designated XM-135, had an issue where the power supply to the cockpit instruments would cut out during takeoff, which sounds much worse than it actually is. There were backup systems, which would kick in and take over, but obviously the unit couldn't be cleared for service and handed over until the fault was repaired. The electricians searched for the problem affected repairs, and the test pilot would take the machine up only to report that the fault remained. They would devise new tests, affect more repairs, the test pilot would take her up once more, but again report that the problem stubbornly persisted. Taffy Holden was under immense pressure to get the aircraft cleared and devised a new series of tests. The problem was that the test pilot had been taken off standby and allocated elsewhere because the problem was taking so long to uncover and repair. But the new series of tests could be performed on the runway, with the aircraft taking short runs before stopping, and never actually becoming airborne, and so on the 22nd of July 1966, Taffy Holden decided to get behind the controls and pilot the machine himself. He wasn't completely inexperienced, he had flown aircraft before, having learned to fly in a de Havilland Tiger Moth biplane before the outbreak of World War II. 
but the difference between the two vehicles is analogous to a billy cart being compared to a Formula One race car. But Taffy, although a little bit nervous, didn't seem to think it was going to be a problem as the plane was never meant to leave the ground. And the first test went okay. Taffy moved the plane around 40 metres, stopped, and not having a helmet or radio, hand signalled to the ground crew that he intended to go ahead with the next test. That test also went well, and so he began the third test. The Lightning, as I said, was state-of-the-art in its time, and stayed in service with the RAF from the late 1950s to the late 1980s. And it was fast. Designed to intercept Soviet nuclear bombers, it had to get in the air in a matter of minutes, and was capable of reaching Mach 2, or twice the speed of sound. One of the reasons it could was its reheat, or afterburner, which injects additional fuel into a combustor behind the turbine, which greatly increases thrust. In technical terms, it's all that fire and stuff you see coming out the back of supersonic jets. In the Lightning, the afterburner was engaged by pushing the throttle past the afterburner gate, which then locks in place. And that, quite by accident, is what Taffy Holden did. Described by most pilots who flew the Lightning as like being strapped to a rocket, it was capable of climbing vertically and could go from standing on the runway motionless to being at an altitude of 12,000 metres in just over two minutes. An unfamiliar experience to a man who learned to fly in a canvas biplane. Before Taffy knew what had happened, the fighter shot down the runway like a bullet, narrowly missing a fuel tanker and crossing paths with a de Havilland Comet passenger jet, which had fortunately just become airborne and passed over the top of the Lightning narrowly avoiding a collision. Holden fumbled with the gate keys behind the throttle, but he wasn't experienced enough, and what with everything happening so fast, he was quickly running out of runway. He was out of time, out of space, and his only real option was to pull back on the controls. And so the Lightning, at lightning speed, left the ground. A man whose flying experience was for the most part in primitive aircraft that moved much more leisurely and with a lot less complication, suddenly and unexpectedly found himself flying in circles around the airport in one of the fastest, most technologically advanced bits of kit the world had to offer. As I pointed out, he was conducting ground tests and had neglected to bring a helmet, which meant he couldn't connect to the radio and receive help from the ground. I don't know if the radio in a Lightning works without a helmet. Frankly, I didn't bother to find out because it's a moot point. The canopy had also been removed for the ground test, and he wouldn't have been able to hear it anyway. And in addition to all this, for safety reasons, while the ground test was being conducted, the ejector seat was locked in place. His only real option was to land it himself. He'd been given a brief rundown of the controls before getting in the pilot's seat and after a few moments was able to find the keys that unlocked the afterburner gate. Still travelling somewhat faster than the 175 kilometres an hour he was accustomed to, at least now he wouldn't reach the Lightning's top speed of 2,415 kilometres an hour, which would make landing impossible. Landing was going to be difficult enough. He circled the runway several times before committing himself, but aborted the first two attempts because he was unable to adjust his speed and altitude. On the third attempt, he got the wheels on the ground. 
He was able to find and engage the parachute, but there was another slight hitch. You may have noticed some older aircraft, once on the ground, sit back on a small wheel on their tail. And like most early aircraft, the Tiger Moth he had learned to fly in was one of those, which is known as a tail dragger. And his training had taught him to land the plane in this way. Thus, that was the attitude that he adopted, which in turn bumped the tail of the lightning on the ground and broke the parachute off. He applied the brakes so hard he burnt them out, and it was sheer luck that the aircraft rolled to a stop, approximately 100 metres before the end of the runway. The whole experience lasted a mere 12 minutes, but must have felt like an eternity for the poor fellow, who narrowly escaped death five times during that 12 minutes. Still, nobody was hurt, and what an extraordinary tale to tell the grandchildren. When a dead 45-foot sperm whale washed up on a beach just south of Florence on the central Oregon coast, nobody was quite sure what to do with it. Burying the creature was suggested naturally, but at 45 feet and weighing 8 tonnes, that would require a rather large hole that would more than likely be uncovered unless it was extremely deep. Cutting it into smaller pieces and then burying it was another idea that was bandied about, but the whale had been dead long enough to begin smelling quite badly and nobody wanted to volunteer to chop it up. They tried to palm it off too, but that didn't work. A quote from Assistant District Engineer George Thornton. We were trying to find if a rendering plant would want the thing to make fertiliser, but we didn't find any takers. End quote. The more the authorities procrastinated, the worse the smell became and the further it travelled described by a local newspaper as a big smell, which may have been in the running for understatement of the 20th century, after about a week, the stench was so intolerable that something just had to be done, and an idea was settled upon. The department responsible for management of the coastline, the State Highway Division, decided to blow it up. Hard to believe in this day and age, but it was 1970. The idea was that a big enough explosion would practically vaporise the animal and blow it all out to sea with the larger pieces becoming fish food and meals for the local seagull population. And so, with breath held and noses pinched, dynamite was packed around the whale. They had been advised by an explosive expert and military veteran that around 20 sticks would be sufficient. 20 sticks would weigh around 4.5 pounds or 3.8 kilos, but they decided to go a little bigger just to be on the safe side. They used 20 cases, 450 kilos of dynamite, and at 3.45pm on the 12th of November 1970, they pushed the plunger. Not even giving a countdown. What happened next was best described by journalist Larry Bacon, who was standing with the crowd over a quarter of a mile away, who said he saw, quote, a hundred-foot geezer of blood, blubber and sand going up into the sky, end quote. But as we all know, what goes up must come down. Have you ever observed the behaviour of a crowd as something begins to dawn on them? Perhaps you've been at a music festival or a rock concert, effervescing with anticipation. Those people whose music you have loved for so long, 
that you have seen on television and read about but seemed somehow unreal to you? They are about to be a matter of a few feet away, performing your favourite songs. A figure walks on the stage, and a hush runs through the crowd. Then, the cheering starts and runs through the crowd until it becomes a deafening roar. Well, something similar happened on that beach that day in 1970. Not a frenzy of exaltation, but blind panic, as the putrescent cloud of blood and blubber that was supposed to be blown out to sea was now above them and beginning to fall. Pandemonium ensued as people tried to outrun the putrid rain. Another quote from journalist Larry Bacon. It was like a blubber snowstorm, with tiny particles of blubber floating down after the big chunks. End quote. One of those big chunks, measuring approximately three feet or one metre, caved in the roof turret of a car. Fortunately, there were no reported injuries, but having said that, the stinking miasma caused a great deal of retching and vomiting and stayed with those present for several days. Needless to say, that despite engineer George Thornton believing the blast to have been an unmitigated success, policy today dictates that carcasses be buried, not blown up. You've been listening to Mr Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.